not fear the one and only Tucker Carlson. He's here, right here, right now. Buck up, it's going to get better. Hello, welcome to podcast. Tyler, Tyler, what is this on my teleprompter? I've never seen this before. I can't read this. It's, it's it's very normal. We've done this like seventeen times. I mean, fuck it, we'll do it live. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Tuckered Out. I'm Troy. I'm Tyler, <laughs> and this is a podcast where usually we talk about Tucker Goddamn Carlson, but today uh, we are doing our. So what what, what I want the Foxhole episodes to be? Because up to this point, the the Foxholes we've done have been the tragedy of the bow tie. Yeah. Going forward, I want Foxholes to focus more on things outside of Tucker Carlson. Um, he's always going to be our bread and butter, but there's plenty else out there uh, to, in the world of bullshit. Especially on Fox. <laughs> yeah. And so today we're going to be talking about Billiam O'Reilly. <laughs> Billiam. Um, it, it, that is his Christian, Christian name. I, I, I'm pretty confident. <laughs> um, so... I, I'm reasonably confident that you're right, and I'm not going to check. <laughs> So, uh, before we start, we have new patrons. Yeah, we do. Um, okay, so we just have one new patron this week. Uh, Pissant is just asking questions. Thank you so much, Pissant. And then, I owe an apology to our top patron for mispronouncing their name. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Roxy Gob Jenkins. Um, and I'm sorry that I mispronounced your name last week. Yeah, thanks you, Ro- <laughs> thank you, Roxy Gob, but not Roxy Glob. I don't know who the fuck that is, but I revoke your thank you, Roxy Glob. <laughs> you know, I listened back. I think you said it right, and then I said it wrong, and then you repeated me. You know, it's it's okay. Whichever, however it happened, we've we've fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> we've learned. We're better now. Okay, so. Uh, Bill O'Reilly, and I I was interested to start here because I feel like we have a pretty good handle on Tucker at this point. We, we kind of know who he is, but I wanted to do more, like, better get a better, better understanding of the ecosystem that Tucker exists in. And I, I thought a good starting point there would be Bill O'Reilly, because Bill O'Reilly, over the course of his 21-year career at Fox News, his show, The O'Reilly Factor, was pretty regularly the, the top cable news show. And then when he was fired from Fox in 2017, his time slot was what Tucker Carlson tonight filled. Yes. So a lot of Tucker's initial audience was O'Reilly's audience. And then Tucker, of course, subsequently went on to break O'Reilly's record. And so I was interested in kind of like what came before the man we know today. <laughs> um, and uh, this led me down some interesting, in- interesting paths. I'm excited. And I think it's going to give us a better context for understanding kind of the newer propagandists that Tucker is platforming going forward. Cool, but, like, not cool. (laughs) Before we dive all the way in here, though, some people have been sending me, and thank you, by the way, I'm not complaining, but a lot of people have been sending me these, uh, this article about Tucker Carlson that dropped last week about how he is a a source of hot gossip for mainstream journalists. Yeah, I saw that, too, and... It was so funny. Like, (laughs) Yeah, so for those that don't know, a New York Times reporter named Ben Smith revealed last week that um, Tucker Carlson is a common anonymous source for journalists in the mainstream media. Uh, During the Trump years, he was kind of the go-to guy for embarrassing insider stories about Trump and the inner workings at Fox News. Ben Smith, he himself has used Tucker as a source, and so he's talked to 16 other journalists who confirmed that they have... And 
kind of the point he was making is that it, Tucker goes on his show every night and attacks the mainstream media. He calls them cringing animals not worthy of respect. Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, off air, he's he's chatting him up on the phone with all this with all this gossip and whatnot. Right. Because he's a liar. <laughs> yeah. And this has led a lot of people to be like, oh, well, uh, so this is proof that Tucker is insincere. He doesn't mean everything he says up there. And I, I've thought about that, and I, I don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> like, the it, whether or not what he says is literally true, it it is damaging. Um, his audience trusts him. We have a lot of, uh, like, firsthand data showing people have a lot of trust in Tucker Carlson and Fox News in general who, who view him. Right, and then even if they're not taking Tucker literally at his word, like I, I watch Tucker Carlson almost every day, and the emotional experience of watching his show, as someone who doesn't believe a goddamn thing he says, the <laughs> emotional experience is still toxic. So, like I, I've had to, I've had to implement like safeguards for myself as I've been exposing myself to this every day. Like it, it, it it's bad for you, and so like even if it becomes widely accepted that. Tucker is insincere up there. His show is still bad. Yeah, the, his his intent behind saying white nationalist things does not affect whether or not the things he's saying are white nationalist and bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also, like, Tucker has trained his audience to disbelieve the media, so anytime there's, like, a negative story about Tucker, his audience is just going to think it's bullshit. So mm-hmm. it, 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 it doesn't matter. The best take that I did read on this, though, was actually from David Froome in The Atlantic. Uh, he wrote an article called Remember Who Tucker Carlson Is, where he talked about how a couple of years ago, so, some demonstrators did gather outside of Tucker's house, and Tucker blew that up into a whole big thing. He he was saying that like they broke down his door, threatened his family, threatened him with a pipe bomb, did all this damage, and the the, the mainstream media jumped to his defense. Stephen Colbert tweeted, like, it's our right to to battle Tucker Carlson's ideas, but don't engage in this kind of behavior, which would have been the right response if any of it was true. But it it turned out to be bullshit. Like the door was not broken. There was never a pipe bomb. The demonstrators were there for like fifteen minutes and left or something. Mm-hmm. Um. So the point David Froome was making is that Tucker is not a good faith actor, and he is a consummate liar. And so th- these journalists should take that into account when going for t- to Tucker for all the, all this juicy gossip that he probably has an agenda with anything he's saying. It, one, one take that I've seen is that like being a reliable source for these people kind of builds in protection for him that it, they're going to then cover him more softly. I don't know how true that is, but I, I, I can see it. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. I don't, yeah, not good. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so those are my thoughts on, on that story. It, 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 it's kind of funny. There's some funny anecdotes in there. It's, it's certainly revealing of what a duplicitous shitbag Tucker is, but I, I don't think it means that much in the long run. So, with that out of the way, uh, Bill O'Reilly. At, at, the, at the top here, Tyler, I thought I would get your, your questions out of the way. Because when I said we were going to do an episode about Bill O'Reilly, you asked me if he was less overtly white nationalist than Tucker. And at the time, <laughs> I said yes. Um, well, I, I demurred, but I meant yes. <laughs> and uh, since then, as I finished this episode, I, ca- I came across some older clips that made me a bit less sure. For example, here he is talking about how uh, the Democrats want to take power away from the white establishment. 
Ah. And also, I, I don't know exactly why, but the audio in this clip is a little bit weird. It's not this way in any of the other clips. So don't don't worry if, if this one is a little bit less clear. Sounds good. Thanks for watching us tonight. Abolishing the Electoral College. That is the subject of this evening's Talking Points memo. After Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, the left in America is demanding that the Electoral College system put into place in 1787 be scrapped. But there's a hidden reason for this. As we reported, even though Secretary Clinton won the popular vote by 2.8 million, the progressive state of California provided all of that margin. Clinton defeating Trump there by about 4.3 million votes. So if the Electoral College were abolished, presidential candidates could simply campaign in the nation's largest states and cities, New York, L.A., Chicago, Houston, and rack up enough votes to pretty much win any election. That's what the left wants. That's what they want. Because in the large urban areas and blue states like New York and California, minorities are substantial. Look at the landscape. Philadelphia, Dallas-Fort Worth, Miami. In all of these places, the minority vote usually goes heavily to the Democrats. Add to that New York City, L.A., and Chicago, San Francisco. Don't really have a national election anymore, do you? You have targeted populations. Newspapers like the New York Times and the L.A. Times have editorialized to get rid of the Electoral College. They well know that neutralizing the largely white rural areas in the Midwest and South will assure liberal politicians get power and keep it. Talking Boys believes this is all about race. The left sees white privilege in America as an oppressive force that must be done away with. Therefore, white working class voters must be marginalized. And what better way to do that than center the voting power in the cities? Very few commentators will tell you that the heart of liberalism in America today is based on race. It permeates almost every issue that white men have set up a system of oppression. That system must be destroyed. Bernie Sanders peddled that. Some extent, Hillary Clinton did. And the liberal media tries to sell that all day long. So-called white privilege, bad. Diversity, good. If you look at the voting patterns, it's clear that the Democrats are heavily reliant on the minority vote, also on the woman vote. White men have largely abandoned the Democrats. And the left believes this is because of racism, that they want to punish minorities, keep them down. So that's what's really going on when you hear about the Electoral College and how unfair it allegedly is. Summing up, left wants power taken away from the white establishment. They want a profound change in the way America is run. Taking voting power away from the white precincts is the quickest way to do that. Okay, yeah, so taking power away from the white establishment is is bad. Um. <laughs> oh, I feel like I just got transported like 10 years in the past. Just, I know, like, right? hearing like, oh, they're only going to campaign in large cities as though they don't already do that. <laughs> nope, nobody's campaigning in South Dakota. Also, Bill, Billiam, diversity indeed good. Thank you very much. <laughs> Yeah, and that's just a reminder that there's nothing new under the sun. When Tucker says diversity isn't our strength, here's Bill O'Reilly a couple of years before being like, white privilege, bad, diversity, good. Yeah. <laughs> Very obnoxiously, I might add. Yeah, and then here he is talking about the phrase white suppression. White suppression, the big lie. That is the subject of this evening's Talking Points memo. Joining white privilege is a new piece of far-left propaganda called white suppression. 
Basically, the anti-American zealots are trying to convince people that we have an unjust society. We need a complete overhaul in our political and economic systems. White privilege and suppression will be a big issue in the upcoming presidential campaign, even if those terms are not openly used. So let's get down to it. The other night on The Factor, I said this. Our traditional American values are under siege nearly everywhere. If you're a Christian or a white man in the USA, it's open season on you. Therefore, Hillary Clinton has an advantage. She can run a general campaign, first woman in the White House, and I'm going to help you by increasing the entitlement society. And that's my political analysis. You may disagree, but I can back up what I say all day long. Okay, so maybe a little, uh, a little dog whistly there. Um, white, white suppression is the big lie. And then pretending that we live in a perfectly just society? Frankly, in my opinion, call me a radical or something. Um, until there are no homeless people and no one dying of preventable diseases, we will live in an unjust society. Like, fuck you, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And then a lot of Tucker's kind of white nationalisty Great Replacement narratives come in the form of uh, fears that immigrants are going to come replace us. So here's Bill's take on that. Now, many believe this is a pure political strategy, that flooding the nation with foreigners, many of whom will get the right to vote, strengthens the Democratic Party. But there's much more in play. The radical left immigration vision would profoundly change all of America's traditions, all of them. And that's what the left wants, because that ideology sees the American Judeo-Christian tradition as oppressive, exploitative, and a white privilege legacy. Thus, the uber-left wants traditional America wiped off the face of the earth. That's what's truly going on. And if Americans don't wise up quickly, the left-wing vision of immigration may very well become a reality. Well, I mean, the racist parts of traditional America, I would like to eradicate. <laughs> yeah, the parts that worry that uh, it, immigrants are going to destroy American traditional values. Yeah. Yeah, so that that's essentially the same shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a lot of, lot of familiar ground we're covering. Yeah. Uh, and I might have buried the lead here a little bit. He interviewed David Duke. <laughs> uh, okay. And I, uh, I, I, it wasn't like a friendly interview. He it, basically the whole thing was them arguing because David Duke was saying he wasn't a white supremacist, and Bill O'Reilly was like, "Come on, you're a white supremacist." Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, like, I, I, I'm not going to play any clips of David Duke just for that. But uh, it, you don't come on the biggest national cable news show and go like, "Yeah, I'm a white supremacist." You gotta like, <laughs> yeah. you're trying to spread the message, right? <laughs> That turns people away from you. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it, is Bill less overtly white nationalist? Eh, that's my new answer. <laughs> Agree. <laughs> uh, so far. <laughs> so then with that out of the way, let's get into uh, some of the, the, the biography here. So one of the things that Bill O'Reilly did, was maybe a pioneer in this, was his, uh, and this will be familiar to listeners of our show who listen to Tucker pretend he's like a champion of the working man. Yeah. Um, Bill positioned himself as like a populist. I'm here. He he called them the folks. Like I'm here for the folks. Uh, 
And he, he complained that, like, Obama was separating himself from the folks because he's an elitist and things like that. Yeah, because Obama wasn't wealthy before he was a president. Okay, <laughs> whatever. It, that, that's, a, that's, an, that's another similarity between these two, is that they both position themselves as, like, uh, a champion for the working class against the corrupt elites exploiting them. Uh, how they come to that narrative is a little bit different, though. In the case of Tucker Carlson, we've seen he he postures himself as, like, a proud traitor to the elite class. Like, he, he'll say, yeah, I, I, I was born among these, these elites, and that's how I, I know how they think, and that's why I can tell you what it's like. Bill, on the other hand, he, he really stressed kind of like these working class roots that he had. He, he talks about grow, growing up poor in Levittown, his dad didn't make a lot of money. It's a little bit suspect just how, how true that is. I mean, like, Bill went to a private school and later attended Harvard. He... <laughs> And he talks in his book, his biography, um, his autobiography, he wrote that his dad never made more than $30,000 a year, but adjusted for inflation, that's like eighty grand. Um, so I, there's reason to believe that Bill wasn't, wasn't exactly as uh, bootstraps as he, he likes to pretend. Yeah, no. Um, but I find it interesting that he had to pretend, and Tucker doesn't, and they achieve basically the same effect. And I think... I think that's one of the the primary like tensions I want to look at is where like when Bill got his start in broadcasting, reality still mattered, and so right. he, and so like he had to actually seem like he was who he said he was. Yeah. And now things have progressed to a point where narrative kind of supersedes reality, mm-hmm. and so it doesn't matter that Tucker is a, a an heir to a TV dinner fortune yeah. and his dad owned islands like it. As long as he he plays the character well, that's good enough. Yeah, and I I thought that was interesting. I um, mean, like, I I know this is like really obvious, but like Trump pretended that he was like a man of the working class. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And to really punctuate the uh, the the class difference thing, that um, it, he, here's a clip that that Tucker Carlson he okay, so in two thousand three. Tucker was inter- interviewed by C-SPAN for his book, um, like, Politicians, Partisans, and Parasites. And uh, they asked him about a, uh, something he said about O'Reilly in the book that he elaborates on here. And just given the benefit of hindsight, this is so goddamn funny. Another quote from your book, Bill O'Reilly's success is built on the perception that he really is who he claims to be. If he ever gets caught out of character, it's over. That's right. I, I, I say before that that you know Bill Riley's really talented. He's more talented than I am. You know he's got a lot more viewers than I do. He's a better communicator than I am. Uh, but I think there's kind of a deep phoniness at the center of his shtick. Uh, and again, as I say, the shtick is sort of built on this perception that he is the character he plays. He is every man. This kind of po- he's not right wing. He's a populist. This kind of Irish Catholic populist fighting for you against the powers that be. And that's great as a shtick. But I'm just saying the moment that it's revealed not to be true. It's over. The moment he gets caught, you know, slapping a flight attendant on the Concord for not bringing his champagne fast enough or barking at, you know, one of his subordinates to take the, you know, brown M&Ms out of my bowl and get me a bottle of Evian or something like that. The second that makes page six, it's over, right? Because the whole thing is predicated on the fact that he is who he says he is. And just nobody is that person, especially not someone who makes a million dollars, you know, or many millions a year as he does. (laughs) <laughs> wow yeah, isn't that beautiful <laughs> i have never seen a blacker pot 
Yeah, that is wild. <laughs> like it. I mean, yeah, Tucker, you got it, man. <laughs> so at some point between then and now, it's like, oh, you can just be whoever you say you are, and nothing matters. <laughs> That's really the lesson of the last few years. Nothing matters. Um, <laughs> Don't I know it? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, so uh, B- Bill O'Reilly. I kind of assumed that after he got fired from Fox, Bill O'Reilly just retired with his millions. Um, That's what I would have done. <laughs> and then he, he popped up on my radar again recently because uh, c- coming up this year, he's doing the speaking tour with Donald Trump. Fun. And it's billed as a history tour. He's going to be interviewing Trump about the history of his administration. So the the last year history. Yeah, yeah the history of seven months ago. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so history by technicality is. <laughs> <laughs> and right now they have like four events booked, and he says if Trump likes it, he has twenty more lined up. Uh... Um, the VIP tickets for this event. Are seven thousand five hundred dollars? <laughs> okay, uh, but but that gets you a photo with both men. So I mean, worth it. Mm, debatable. <laughs> <laughs> so so I was hearing about that that speaking tour. They kind of put Bill O'Reilly on my radar. I was like, what's he been up to? Uh, turns out he really never stopped broadcasting. The month he was fired from Fox, he started a podcast. I feel like I've seen his podcast yeah and, and we're going to talk about it in a bit but first i want to look a little bit at where he got his start on the o'reilly factor let's let's dig into the the old bio a little here so uh billiam james o'reilly jr was born on september 10th 1949 in fort lee new jersey in 1951 his family moved to levittown on long island where he would spend his formative years now, Levittown was built as a planned community for returning World War II veterans between 1947 and 1951, and it was the nation's first mass-produced suburb. Levittown is interesting in that, depending on who you ask, it's either a symbol of the American dream or a symbol of racial segregation in the United States. Uh, for most of its history, including the period in which O'Reilly lived there, Le- Levittown explicitly had a rule that its homes were, quote, not to be used or occupied by any person other than members of the Caucasian race. Oh. <laughs> so not a lot of diversity when Bill was growing up. No. Growing up, O'Reilly was a gifted student and a fairly accomplished athlete. He attended the same high school as Billy Joel, who he described <laughs> as a hoodlum. <laughs> uh, after graduating high school in 1967, O'Reilly attended Marist College in New York, where he landed his first journalism gig writing for the school newspaper. He majored in history there and was an honor student. Uh, he spent his his junior year abroad at Queen Mary College at the University of London, as all working class people do. <laughs> <laughs> he received his Bachelor of Arts degree in history in 1971. After graduating from Marist College, O'Reilly moved to Miami, where he taught English and history at Monsignor Pace High School from 1970 to 1972. The following year, he returned to collegiate life and earned a master's degree in broadcast journalism from Boston University. While he attended BU, he was a reporter and a columnist for various local newspapers, and he did an internship in the newsroom of WBZ-TV. So he's, he's already kind of getting his foot in the door of this world. But his career in broadcasting, though, got its start in earnest at WNEP-TV in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where he worked as a reporter and an anchor and also reported the weather. 
From there, O'Reilly moved around the country and filled basically any broadcasting gig he could get, and it paid off. At WFAA-TV in Dallas, O'Reilly was awarded the Dallas Press Club Award for Excellence in Investigative Reporting. From there, he moved to KMGH-TV in Denver, where he won a local Emmy Award for his coverage of a skyjacking. Not long after, working at, an, at a station in New York, he won a second local Emmy, which was for investigating corrupt city marshals. A skyjacking? Yeah, like a, a, a plane jacking. They used to be way more common. Oh. <laughs> like, pre-9-11 was a whole different world, man. I'm sure that what you mean is, like, someone who was a passenger on the plane then took control of the plane, but I was imagining, like, a Just Cause style, someone <laughs> jumps out of one plane and grapples onto another plane. Yeah, I'm pretty um, sure that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's what got Billy is, Emmy. I mean, congrats <laughs> to him, man. It was in 1982 that O'Reilly first went national when he became a correspondent for CBS News. It was here that O'Reilly covered the wars in El Salvador and in the Falkland Islands. And this, this is going to be a big part of his mythology later, which we're going to talk about. But for now, the relevant information is, is that O'Reilly ultimately left CBS over a dispute he had with them relating to the use of uncredited footage his crew had shot in Buenos Aires. And after leaving CBS, he went, back to, he went back to local news for a little while, working at several other stations in different cities around the country. On January 22, 1986, O'Reilly's career took another turn. On that day, a Navy Sea News correspondent named Joe Spencer died in a helicopter crash en route to covering the 1985 Hormel strike. Uh, Spencer was a personal friend of O'Reilly's, and Bill delivered his eulogy. The funeral was attended by Rooney Ulrich, the then-president of ABC News. And after hearing the eulogy, Rooney decided to hire O'Reilly at ABC. Bill O'Reilly worked at ABC for three years, and during that time, he received two more Emmy Awards and two National Headliner Awards for excellence in reporting. So his career's kind of taken off at this point. Yeah. It was in 1989 that O'Reilly left ABC to join the nationally syndicated show Inside Edition. And just three weeks into that show's run, he became its anchor. Uh, this, is, this is where O'Reilly started to become a household name. He worked for Inside Edition for, until 1995, and during that time, he was one of the first American broadcasters to cover the fall of the Berlin Wall. He obtained the first exclusive interview with murderer Joel Steinberg, and he was the first television host on the scene of the 1992 Los Angeles riots. This is also where the viral video of O'Reilly screaming, Fuck it, we'll do it live, came to be. Uh, <laughs> which, for, for anyone who isn't familiar, that... Um, that's what I was trying to do at the beginning. And if you're not familiar, that probably was really weird. Um, so. <laughs> probably. That was way back in the 90s? Yep. Yeah. Huh. I thought it was much more recent than that. Yeah. Uh, he looks like a different person. It's crazy. Like, if you watched the video, I wouldn't have known it was him. <laughs> <laughs> so this brings us to October of 1996, when Roger Ailes, chairman and CEO of the then startup Fox News Channel, hired Bill O'Reilly to anchor the O'Reilly Report, which was then quickly renamed the O'Reilly Factor, the show that made Bill a star and a force in American politics. O'Reilly was with Fox at the very beginning, and straight at the gate he was sort of their flagship star. The O'Reilly Factor ran from 1996 to 2017, and over the course of its 21-year run, was routinely the highest-rated show on any of the cable news networks. O'Reilly's rise to prominence was one of the forces that pushed the 24-hour cable news networks toward a more opinion-based programming. From the very beginning, the O'Reilly Factor courted controversy and stirred up accusations that Bill distorted facts and used erroneous statistics in his coverage. 
In 2007, a full 10 years before his eventual firing, researchers from the Indiana University School of Journalism published a report analyzing segments of O'Reilly's show. The report concluded that O'Reilly engaged in propaganda, frequently resorted to name-calling, and consistently cast non-Americans as threats. A lot of O'Reilly's controversies came from culture war fights, some of which will feel familiar to us, and others are almost kind of quaint looking back. (laughs) So, for example, in 2002, he called on Americans to boycott Pepsi um, because some of their ads featured the rapper Ludacris. And according to O'Reilly, Ludacris' lyrics, quote, glamorize a life of guns, violence, drugs, and disrespect of women. <laughs> that last one is especially especially fun, given the trajectory that O'Reilly's career would take. Yeah. <laughs> for the record, according to Ludacris, him and O'Reilly did eventually make amends for their feud. <laughs> <laughs> However, not all of O'Reilly's culture war battles during this period ended so amicably. Uh, some of our listeners are probably familiar with the story of Dr. George Tiller. I vaguely remember hearing about this from like my grandparents, and I had a very distorted view of things at the time. I don't think I've heard about this at all. So, yeah, so Beginning in 2005, O'Reilly regularly denounced Dr. George Tiller by name on his show. Tiller was a Kansas-based physician who specialized in providing second and third trimester abortions. Over a four-year period, O'Reilly ran segments about Dr. Tiller on 29 episodes of his show. He nicknamed the doctor Taylor the Baby Killer and equated his work with that of the Nazis, Al-Qaeda, and Nambla. As you do. Yeah. You know, if, if you're trying to be fair and balanced. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> at one point, O'Reilly said that Taylor was, quote, operating a death mill and claimed that he was executing babies about to be born. In 2008, O'Reilly dispatched one of his show's contributors, Jesse Waters, to grill the governor of Kansas, the governor of Kansas, about accepting campaign donations from Dr. Tiller. This came after another incident in 2006 when O'Reilly had Jesse Waters confront Tiller's attorney outside of his law office for an ambush interview. And then in 2007, one of the producers on the O'Reilly Factor, a man named Porter Barry, caught up with Dr. Tiller himself on his way to work and carried out another ambush interview. So Tiller was a frequent target on O'Reilly's show. On November 3rd of 2006. O'Reilly had a women's rights activist named Amy Richards on as a guest to discuss Dr. Tiller. Over the course of that conversation, O'Reilly repeatedly claimed that he had inside information and incontrovertible evidence that Tiller had been, quote, executing babies because the mothers were suffering from depression. He never produced this evidence, but it didn't matter. On May 31st of 2009, Dr. George Tiller was murdered while walking into his church. The killer, a militant anti-abortion activist named Scott Roeder, had waited in the pews of the church until he saw Dr. Tiller walking in, at which point he approached Tiller and shot him in the head at point-blank range. Okay. Yeah. Um, that didn't go where I thought it was going. <laughs> now, Roeder was an extremist in his own right, and it's important to note that Tiller had been the target of violence before, including a bombing at his clinic in 1986 and another shooting that he survived. Like, in 1993, he was shot in both arms. And th- those were before O'Reilly began attacking him on TV, so... Like, it, it, it would be wrong to say that O'Reilly is, like, solely to blame here, but he definitely was, like, the, the loudest voice contributing to the atmosphere that led to violence against Tiller. Uh. Uh, O'Reilly himself never explicitly advocated for violence, but he came pretty damn close, like in this clip where he talks about what he would do if he could get his hands on Tiller. This is Associated... No, this is Kansas City Star. Kansas City Star. Quote, 
O'Reilly said on a program that a source told his show that abortion providers were performing late-term abortions because the women were depressed. A mental health risk he deemed insufficient. He deemed insufficient. This is David Klepper, Kansas City Star. You see? O'Reilly deemed it. Who's O'Reilly? He deemed. Okay. So I'm, I'm the fascist. I'm the bad guy. I'm the problem. Not Tiller. No, he, we, no, 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 no. He's a good guy. Now, Tiller's pumping all kinds of money into, uh, obviously, the uh, attorney general race. He wants the guy that's going to let him off the hook to win. Those of you listening in Kansas, you ought to know that. You know, I, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. You guys know these guys better than I do. But I'll tell you what, anything Tiller wants, I'm voting the other way. <laughs> and if I could get my hands on Tiller, well, you know, can't be vigilantes. Can't do that. I, it's just a figure. Yeah. So this late-term abortion stuff is like a common talking point, and it's like never happened. If you are pregnant and you're in your late term, like if you're in the last trimester, um, typically if you want an abortion at that point, they just induce labor. They don't give you an abortion yeah like it, it's it's so exceedingly rare and like, yeah it, it's not like he was killing babies left and right yeah but it there, there we have o'reilly talking about oh we can't be vigilantes but you know you know yeah like it it's it, it's irresponsible and clearly we know where it like is. he's basically saying i'm not allowed to say this on tv but you know what i'm saying right wink wink yeah like, <laughs> yeah it it was at at best irresponsible and in the aftermath of the murder o'reilly sat on his show quote no backpedaling here. Every single thing we said about Tiller was true. Now, Citation needed. <laughs> Citation pending, I guess. <laughs> right? Now, Bill O'Reilly's show was not just an engine for bad takes and toxic commentary. He was also a huge liar. I mentioned before that Bill O'Reilly made the war zone reporting early in his career a major part of his mythology. O'Reilly repeatedly told his audience over the years that he was a war correspondent during the Falklands War, and that he experienced combat during that conflict. He often evoked that experience to emphasize that he understands war as only someone who has witnessed it could. As he once put it, quote, I've been there. That's what really separates me from most of these other bloviators. I bloviate, but I bloviate about stuff I've seen. They bloviate about stuff they haven't. He claimed to have almost been killed in the war zone three times. He hit on this constantly distresses bona fides as a serious reporter. Here he is in 2013 while reporting on the Boston Marathon bombing. Uh, he's interviewing a Boston Globe photographer who was present at the bombing, and O'Reilly uses the opportunity to describe his own heroic exploits during the Falklands War. No. Yeah. No. Because uh. yeah, it's never not about me. <sighs> now, when you're confronted with somebody bleeding and injured, do you help them and then shoot and, and do all that? And I'll tell you a story about what happened to me one time in a second, but I want you to answer that question first. You know, another great question. Um, right after it happened, I mean, you're at the finish line, and every year at the marathon, there's so many EMTs and paramedics and firefighters and police. They literally jumped over that barricade first within All right, so seconds. So you, you had it covered, so they didn't need you, you to do covered. anything. Right. Because I was in a situation I, one time yeah. in a war uh, zone in Argentina in the Falklands where my photographer got run down and, and hit his head and was bleeding from the ear on, on the concrete, and the army was chasing us. I had to make a decision, and I dragged him off. You know, but at the same time, I'm looking around and, and trying to do my job, but I figured I had to get this guy out of there um, because that was more important. 
Yeah, so it... You invite on someone who was witness to a tragedy and then just interrupt him to talk yeah. about your how good of a person you are for not leaving this guy bleeding on the yeah. street. Yeah, and he, this is like in the immediate aftermath of the bombing. He's, Let me talk about me. Yeah, <laughs> my God. <laughs> oh, man, he's such an asshole. <laughs> uh, yeah, yep. Can uh, confirm. And he's also full of shit. So in 2015... An article in Mother Jones by David Korn and Daniel Schulman laid out a lot of evidence that O'Reilly is lying when he talks about his experience in the Falklands. For one, O'Reilly's own account of his time there in his 2001 book, The No Spin Zone, conspicuously leaves out any reference to his harrowing exploits there. But there are other reasons to suspect that his tales of battlefield, battlefield heroics are his own fan fiction. The Falklands War was fought in remote locations, which included the British territory of South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands, more than 1,400 miles offshore. Few reporters were able to witness the combat there. On the British side, the government in London only allowed 30 British journalists to accompany its military forces, and those correspondents were almost entirely dependent on the Navy for not only access to the conflict, but the ability to report back. There were no journalists from the United States present at the conflict. Keep in mind that during the time that Bill O'Reilly says he was reporting on the Falcons War, he was working for CBS. Susan Zarinsky, a longtime CBS News producer who helped manage the network's coverage of that conflict, told Mother Jones, quote, Nobody got to the war zone during the Falcons War. She went on to say that she does not remember what O'Reilly was doing during this time. But she notes she notes that the military junta kept U.S. reporters from reaching the islands, quote, you weren't allowed on by the Argentinians. No CBS person got there. Hmm. <laughs> A little suspect, huh? Yeah. Uh, further investigation found that O'Reilly only arrived in Argentina shortly before the end of the war, and that the closest he ever got to the war zone was the CBS base of operations in Buenos Aires, Buenos Aires Argentina's capital, over a thousand miles away from the fighting. Hmm. He must have had a really, really powerful telescope to see that bleeding cameraman. Yeah, yeah it's crazy <laughs> that he got there in time. This is like a rogue mortar shell travel all that way. It's freak accident, man. Oh, I think he would have mentioned mile, that in the memoir. God, a thousand miles is so far. It, that's like driving from Chicago to Denver. It takes like 16 hours. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's wild. Now, O'Reilly was nearer to protests that erupted in Buenos Aires at the end of the war. And he has repeatedly claimed to have witnessed civilians getting killed during those protests. However, other historians and reporters agree that no such deaths occurred. <laughs> uh, but the Falcons War wasn't the only war that O'Reilly has lied about seeing. <laughs> he has repeatedly made the claim that he saw nuns get shot in the head in El Salvador while reporting on the El Salvadoran Civil War. During that war, on December 2nd of 1980... Four members of the Salvadoran National Guard did execute three American nuns. O'Reilly has implied on various occasions that he saw those executions take place. In 2005, he said on his radio show, I've seen guys gun down nuns in El Salvador. And then here's a clip from 2012 where he makes that claim even more explicitly. I don't understand. I don't think a lot of people understand. My mother, for example, doesn't understand evil. When I would tell her, hey, mom, I was in El Salvador and I saw nuns get shot in the back of the head, she almost couldn't process it. She couldn't process it. You know, I mean, and, and, I, and I don't know whether the, we Americans really understand the concept of evil. <laughs> I love the image of Bill O'Reilly just lying about 
war crimes to his mom. She's like, yeah, sure, honey. <laughs> she said, I don't think she understands evil. She didn't even believe me. <laughs> I don't think my mom understands evil. <laughs> oh, man. Um, uh, so the facts are O'Reilly could not possibly have witnessed those executions. He only arrived in El Salvador in 1981 after the killings had already taken place. After being confronted about this in 2015, O'Reilly changed his story and now says that he only saw pictures of the executions, which, you know, uh, is totally... It's the same as seeing an execution. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This is a familiar pattern for O'Reilly. He also claimed to have witnessed terror attacks in Northern Ireland, only to later admit that he'd only seen photos of those events. So, Which, uh, as we have discussed, is the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, man. One time, I, I was I was raising this flag at Iwo Jima. <laughs> and we're not done. O'Reilly claimed repeatedly throughout his career to have been violently attacked by protesters while reporting for Inside Edition during the 1992 Los Angeles riots. He claims to have been bombarded with bricks and rocks by rioters. However, six of his former colleagues, who were with him at the time, have come out and said that O'Reilly is lying about that attack. Uh, They say that he is only exaggerating an incident in which a single individual yelled at him when he arrived on the scene in a limo. (sighs) (laughs) And we're still not done. Uh, Have you ever heard of George de Morenschlitt? No. Which I think I'm pronouncing wrong. um, (laughs) I'm going to do that regularly eat eat my ass. So this is a criminally short overview of what happened with with Demorenschlip. And I encourage people who aren't familiar with the story to look into it further. But the bare bones of it is this. George Demorenschlip was a Russian immigrant and a petroleum geologist who, in the summer of 1962, befriended Lee Harvey Oswald, the man who assassinated JFK. In the aftermath of the assassination... There are allegations that Demorenschlitt had conspired with Oswald in planning the murder of the president. Demorenschlitt, for his part, insisted that Oswald had been a patsy and a scapegoat for the murder. He testified before the Warren Commission in what was the longest congressional testimony ever. Uh, there's a ton that I'm leaving out here. People who are familiar with the story know that, that there's a lot. There's a lot that went on here, not even touching because it would take us several hours to disentangle, and it's not the point of this episode. Um, and I don't want to, like, say anything more confidently than I actually am about conclusions to draw in the case. Makes sense. Um, but an important piece to consider is this. Near the end of his life, DeMorenschlitt sent a letter to the then-director of the CIA, George H.W. Bush. The letter said, You will excuse this handwritten letter. Maybe you will be able to bring a solution to the helpless situation I find myself in. My wife and I find ourselves surrounded by some vigilantes. Our phone bugged, and we are being followed everywhere. Either FBI is involved in this, or they do not want to accept my complaints. We are driven to insanity by the situation. I have been behaving like a damn fool ever since my daughter Nadia died from cystic fibrosis over three years ago. I tried to write, stupidly and unsuccessfully, about Lee H. Oswald, and must have angered a lot of people. I do not know. But to punish an elderly man like myself and a highly nervous and sick wife is really too much. Could you do something to remove the net around us? This will be my last request for help, and I will not annoy you anymore. Good luck in your important job. Thank you so much. Uh, for his part, 
George H.W. Bush said said that while he he uh, was sorry for Demorange that situation, he could find no evidence that there were uh, like FBI probes ongoing. In November of 1976, Demorange was committed to a mental institution in Texas for three months. His wife stated that he suffered from depression, heard voices, saw visions, and believed that the CIA and the Jewish Mafia were persecuting him. Uh, she also said that he had undergone four previous suicide attempts. He was released by the end of the year. In March of 1977, Demorne was found dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound at the house he was staying at in Florida. Now enter Bill O'Reilly. In his book, Killing Kennedy, O'Reilly claims to have been standing on Demorne doorstep when he heard the shotgun blast that marked his suicide. While it appears to be true that O'Reilly was investigating Demorenschlitt at the time, his story about being present at the suicide was a lie. A police report filed after the suicide makes no mention of O'Reilly being there, and furthermore, the report states that three people inside the house didn't hear the gunshot, nor did they see any strangers around the residence. Further investigations found that at the time of the suicide, O'Reilly was not even in Florida, he was in Dallas, Texas. So, Bill O'Reilly is a proven liar and a repeat offender at that. Um, he's constantly embellished his involvement in major stories to act more credible than he is. Um, in response to the Mother Jones and Media Matters exposés that on, on these various fabrications, a former producer on the O'Reilly Factor, Joe Mudo, said this, Ultimately, he'll survive this because he's not held by his bosses or the public or himself to the same standards of truth-telling. Mudo said. People expect a certain degree of hyperbole and exaggeration from O'Reilly. It's baked into the job description. It's part of his persona. So, does that sound familiar at all? It kind of sounds like the opposite of what Tucker was saying about him. Like, <laughs> the second that the illusion of who he is is shattered, everything goes, goes wrong. And then it's yeah. like, actually, he just lies about everything he is and believes. Yeah, th th yeah this is a line of bullshit that... it. Fox commentators hide behind, like, uh, Fox defended Tucker in a defamation lawsuit um, by successfully arguing in court that hyper hyperbole and exaggeration are baked into his show and that no reasonable viewer t expects to be told the truth. Okay, that judge was an idiot. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yep. That's um, the same defense that Alex Jones uses, isn't it? Pretty much, Because he yeah. got sued and he was like, oh, I'm just playing a character. It's like, well, if people take your character seriously, then it's not a very effective character. Yeah, or like now about the Sandy Hook shit, he'll say that he, he never said that. He was just playing devil's advocate and reporting on what other people were saying, which is bullshit. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so conservatives' only defense for their ideas is that no one, no reasonable person should believe them when they speak. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, look at me. Nobody takes me seriously. <laughs> And that works! Why does it work? Yeah, it's just a joke, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Prank! I fucking hate these people. Um, uh, throughout 2015 and 16, O'Reilly was kind of an early Trump apologist. He, he wasn't explicitly on board right away, but pretty early in the campaign, he was one of the friendliest mainstream voices about Trump's campaign. At one point, he, he said he made a profoundly stupid statement that feminists shouldn't be allowed to cover Trump's campaign because Trump is the antithesis of feminism. <laughs> What? Yeah, this is an interesting take. <laughs> People who disagree with you shouldn't be allowed to report yeah, on like, you? Like, it, I mean, you have a degree in journalism, man. You know how this is supposed to work. <laughs> okay. Um, sure. One, one famous moment between the two is shortly after Trump was elected, um, O'Reilly interviewed him, 
And this is this is where the famous line where uh, O'Reilly was like, but Putin's a killer, and Trump's like, you got a lot of killers, we're not so innocent. If there is any evil in the world, it is the same as having all of the evil in the world, I guess. Yeah, and this is Bill O'Reilly, who we're going to hear more than once, says that he doesn't really do whataboutism. Sure. <laughs> Whatever you say, buddy. Uh, Bill O'Reilly's tenure at Fox News came to a bitter end in 2017, when the New York Times published a series of expo- exposés revealing that O'Reilly and Fox News had settled five different sexual harassment lawsuits against O'Reilly, dating back to 2002. The total amount paid out to the women was estimated to be around $13 million. A few months later, the Times followed up with another report that O'Reilly had also been sued by a former Fox News legal analyst for allegedly instigating a, quote, non-consensual sexual relationship. Which, you know, there might be a different word for that. But yeah. Um, <laughs> O'Reilly paid her $32 million to confidentially settle the lawsuit, bringing his total in hush money payments to $45 million paid out to six different women for their silence. After this came to light, advertisers fled from O'Reilly's show. O'Reilly lost over half his advertisers within a week, almost 60 companies in total. On April 11th of 2017, O'Reilly announced that he was taking a two-week vacation, and on April 19th, Fox News announced that he would not be returning to their network. Uh, the show was promptly renamed The Factor, and its final week was hosted by Dana Perino before airing its final episode on April 21st. For his part, Bill O'Reilly later stated that he regretted not fighting back against his accusers, the way that Sean Hannity had when his show was losing advertisers around the same time. <laughs> I could just say I didn't do it and it works? Holy shit, man, that worked for Hannity? <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and like if that had happened now he totally would still be on fox like yeah <laughs> i mean how many advertisers has tucker lost seriously um so most of us just assume that after this bull o'reilly quietly slipped away into obscurity but in fact he really never stopped broadcasting albeit in a much smaller capacity on april 24th just a couple of days after being fired from fox he launched a podcast called no spin news he also began regularly appearing on the Friday editions of the Glenn Beck radio program. Uh, and uh, Tangent, as I've been going through the history of Fox Moore, I, I, I like Bill O'Reilly as a, as a comparison here. I think, uh, I think a more apt precursor for Tucker Carlson might be Glenn Beck. And so, as much as I hate it, I think we're going to do a Glenn Beck episode soon. <laughs> oh boy, can't wait. So that'll be fun. The only thing that I know about Glenn Beck right now, besides that he's a conservative pundit, is when the video game Watch Dogs came out, he was like, this video game is teaching your children how to hack. Um, and hacking in Watch Dogs is holding the X button? Yeah. So, I'm sure his political takes <laughs> are just phenomenal <laughs> given given that context now that these kids know about the letter x none of our files are safe <laughs> at, at one point he like apologized for having contributed to the hyperpartisanship in in politics and said he was going to do better and he like appeared on samantha b's show for a reconciliation thing and then he went right back on his bullshit he was on tucker's show two weeks ago calling obama a racist so. okay sure <laughs> yeah um Racist against white people, right? Yeah, obviously. <sighs> also, Tucker has been on some buck wild shit this week. I'm excited to talk about. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about him next week again, um, and it feels good to be excited about talking about Tucker because often I'm it's it's more a sense of lingering dread. Uh, <laughs> we'll see how long it lasts. 
Yeah, so uh, not long thereafter, Bill actually landed a new TV show. He, he currently hosts a show also called No Spin News that runs on the first TV, which is a conservative internet-based TV network. I looked into the first TV a little bit. Uh, you, you can watch it for free if you go to their website. Okay. Um, it, it appears to be a product of an organization called the Red Seat Ventures, which was founded by two former executives from Glenn Beck's The Blaze TV. Um, All right. So here is an example of the quality programming that runs on the first TV. This is taken from their uh, programming guide for Sunday, June 13th. Starting at 12 a.m., Planet Hollywoke. At Planet Hollywoke? Planet Hollywoke. Okay. At one, All right. At 1 a.m., The Woke of Wall Street. Wow. <laughs> Followed by 2 a.m., Woke Inc. Uh, <laughs> they, they, shift, they shift topics a little bit at 3 a.m. with America the Vulnerable, uh, which I'm sure is about wokeness in the military. Uh-huh. Um, at 4 a.m., they, they run uh, Stand with Israel, Defending Democracy. Which, great. Democracy of non-Muslims. <laughs> yep. Um, beginning at 5 a.m., they run those same five programs again. And then at 10 a.m., they air something called the National Police Association Report. Uh, at noon, they shift topics to immigration, starting with a show called Escape to America, followed at 1 by Border Battle, America in Danger. And then at 2, Border Crisis, on the scene with Buck Sexton. Oh, I know that guy. Yeah, he, he he's uh he's all over the first TV. Oh boy. Um, other shows running that day include Cops Under Fire with an exclamation mark. Cops Under Fire airs at three, and then my favorite Voices of the Cancelled airs at nine. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh wow! <laughs> the first TV's real bread and butter, though is in its lineup of five primetime hosts who run daily news commentary shows back-to-back. Those hosts are Jesse Kelly, a Marine combat veteran and right-wing lunatic who we're actually doing an episode about in the next few weeks. Uh, Buck Sexton, one of the co-hosts of the Buck Sexton and Clay Travis show, taking over Rush Limbaugh's time slot. I've tried listening to Buck Sexton several times and find him profoundly boring. Um, I'm sure at some point he'll do something we have to cover, but I... That has not yet happened. <laughs> and then there's Mike Slater, who creeps me the fuck out. Uh, here's a quick example of what Mike Slater's show sounds like. I want to talk about your conscience. Your conscience. How sensitive is your conscience? How closely can you hear it? And do you follow it when you do? Yeah, his whole show was like an hour of him whispering moral truths at you. It's it's terrifying. Yeah, that just like reminded me of like church. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like he's got serious youth pastor energy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see, and then there's Dana Loesch, a former host on NRA TV back when that was a thing. Um, some of our listeners might remember Dana Loesch from this terrifying ad she put out in 2017. We've had enough of the lies. The sanctimony, the arrogance, the hatred, the pettiness, the fake news. We are done with your agenda to undermine voters' will and individual liberty in America. So to every line member of the media, to every Hollywood phony, to the role model athletes who use their free speech to alter and undermine what our flag represents, 
to the politicians who would rather watch America burn than lose one ounce of their own personal power, to the late-night hosts who think their opinions are the only opinions that matter, to the Joanne Reeds, the Morning Joes, the Mikas, to those who stain honest reporting with partisanship, to those who bring bias and propaganda to CNN, the Washington Post, and the New York Times, your time is running out. The clock starts now. So that whole time she's standing against a backdrop of, a backdrop of darkness next to an hourglass that is running out. <laughs> uh, God. Yeah, yeah. So dramatic about yeah, being dark. in power. <laughs> Just imagine those those politicians who would rather burn the system down than lose an ounce of power. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I feel like we might disagree about who is the one doing that, Dana. <laughs> yeah, and I uh, I listened to a little bit of Dana Loesch's show on the first TV. Oh, why would you do that? <laughs> and I came across this clip, which, in good conscience, I cannot avoid playing for you right now. This is the most banana shit I have ever heard. So June is the Pride Month. I'm saying it like the Facebook. It's the Pride, I don't know why. Didn't it used to, and I'm asking this because I, I didn't, I don't remember. Was it always a month or was it like a week before? Do you remember? I remember last year was a month, but I don't remember prior to last year, though. Mm. Well, I have a piece that's coming out in the newsletter where it's the rainbow of everything. And I've noticed this. Like I saw this yesterday with Kellogg's. The Lego people did it, too. But I noticed this with Kellogg's cereal yesterday. And... I, it's the Kellogg's times G-L-A-A-D, so glad. And it says, together with pride, and it has all the Kellogg's people. Is that Pepe the Frog? Is that the Pepe? There's a nuclear rooster, which, by the way, that's a great band name, like Kentucky Fried Rock. Specifically Kentucky. I don't know why. I'm just, you know, uh, nuclear rooster. That's a great band name, actually. I want to use that for something. Anyway, so you have a frosted mini wheat thing. A, is that an Applejack apple? Some disgruntled stick. Uh, Toucan Sam. The Rice Krispie people. The, Tony the Tony the Tiger. The son with the raisins, right? The raisin brand son. Uh, and then who's the Pepe Frog guy? He did the thing that looks That's like... Some sugar uh, Smacks, right? Are they the... It's basically like Black Eyed Peas. It looks like Black Eyed Peas, but a cereal. Yeah, Sugar Smacks. In it. Okay. That's, I never... It was always weird to me. I don't know what the rooster does. I have no idea what that dude's there for. But what they did is they just hijacked Fruit Loops and made it heart-shaped. And that's the... Because all of these companies, they all fall... Every every time that they have, like, the pride or something or anything, they're always like, hey, hey there, fellow gays. That's how these companies are. Hey there, fellow gays. And so they have this... They just took Fruit Loops and they just made it into hearts. That's it. They they hijacked Toucan Sam's Fruit Loops. It's just Fruit Loops. And every, by the way, every Fruit Loop, no matter the flavor, all tastes the same <laughs> taste of like slightly chemical tropical flavor. Troy, you're hurting and me. And so they have the Together with Pride thing. And then on the side, they go, too amazing to put in a box. Now, I have to tell you, as a baby Gen Xer, my Saturday morning paper was a cereal box. I love reading the cereal box. There's all kinds of fun stuff on that cereal box. You all know that. You all read that so intently. You'd stare at that cereal box and you'd read it like it was, you know, Wall Street Journal and you were a 60-year-old man. Still you did it. it. 
And now they have this on the side of the Kellogg's box. It says, has the pronouns, he, him, she, her, they, them, add your own. And somebody put blank off, which is funny. It's a cereal box. You know what I'm saying? It's cereal. Like, like, why do we have to repurpose Fruit Loops? And so you have the frosted wheat piece and the apple and all this, and they're all there with the hand holding. Can I just ask a question also? What gay person eats cereal? Like, the, like <laughs> everybody that I know who, like, they're gay conservative men, all this, they're very not cereal people. It's like they're not going to sit there and eat a bunch of sugar. In a, why don't you just make rainbow sugar? You're, you're going to eat a bunch of GMOs and sugar in a bowl with chemically treated cow's milk, right? Is that, was that the whole thing? Does that sound on brand for anything that you, that you know? Does that sound on brand at all? No. No, it doesn't. Stop. Oh, man. Okay. Nothing could have prepared me for gays don't eat cereal. What gay person eats cereal? <laughs> god okay okay the downfall of civilization is gonna be brought by heart-shaped fruit loops (laughs) (laughs) how can you listen to this woman (laughs) she's been so long listing off all the cereal mascots she doesn't even know what any of them are she's like oh is this is this the Applejack one? Is yeah. I, I, that's a stick? Yeah, the, the disgruntled stick is obviously the cinnamon guy. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. For all of his dumb rhetorical questions, Tucker has never asked what gay person needs serious. <laughs> <laughs> we found a new bottle. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. So, what have I learned about Dana Loesch? Um, she doesn't know things. (laughs) (laughs) But insists that she is capable of talking about them. Yeah, for for an hour at a time. (laughs) Oh, man. Buck wild. She said it with a straight face, just like, well, gay people don't eat cereal, obviously. Why don't they just make rainbow sugar? <laughs> okay, okay, we have to move on. <laughs> the, uh, the headliner on the first TV, though, is our man, Billy O, um, with, with his nightly no-spin news. The rest of our clips are from that nightly show and his podcast, um... He'll often repeat segments between the two or just straight up repost audio, so I'm I'm not going to distinguish which is which as we go forward. <laughs> um, but, uh, because for, for all intents and purposes, they're the same show. Um, but I, I I wanted to get a sense for where O'Reilly is at now, on the issues of the day, you know? So I thought it'd be fun to, uh, to, to look at how he covered a couple of stories compared to, compared to Tucker. So this one, Obama recently uh, said that right-wing media, like, stokes right white rage for ratings. Um, here is O'Reilly's take on that. Then he goes on CNN, and this is an amazing soundbite. Roll it. I also think that there are certain right-wing uh, media venues, for example, that 
monetize and capitalize on stoking the fear and resentment of uh, a white population that is witnessing a changing America and seeing uh, demographic changes and, and do everything they can to give people a sense that um, uh, their way of life is threatened and that people are trying to take advantage of them. She's talking about the right wing conservatives. Now, I'm not big on whataboutism. I don't justify bad behavior by pointing to other bad behavior. That's fifth grade stuff. It's called whataboutism. But this, I can't get away from it. So Barack Obama is saying that some on the right are monetizing fear and resentment of white people. That's true. That is happening some places, but very, very small places. What is happening in reality is that far left corporate media is stoking fear and resentment among black people and other minorities. Does Barack Obama not know that? To a much greater extent, to an extent where people are being killed. Where people are being killed. Where people are attacking the police. Does he not know that or see that? Is he totally blind? So, okay, there are far-right conservative media people that demonize left-wingers to try to mobilize whites. Yes, it happens, but not nearly as much or as visible as the corporate media. CNN is the worst. And he's on CNN. Wow, that that was his take, was yep, it? Yep. <laughs> I'm not big on whataboutism, but what about the left's non-existent white rage? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it was pretty silly. <laughs> this white rage that he's talking about is only happening in small places, like the most watched cable news show in America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um... But at least he acknowledges that it is happening. I mean, that's something. Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, th- this is how Tucker covered that same story. Obama spent eight years dividing the country along racial lines. You think that'd be enough? More than most people do. You think he'd retreat to Hawaii and Martha's Vineyard. But he is back to let you know that if you've got any problem with your kids' teachers telling them that some races are better than others, that you, my friend, are the racist. There are certain right-wing... Uh, media venues, for example, that monetize and capitalize on stoking the fear and resentment of uh, a white population that is witnessing a changing America and seeing uh, demographic changes and and do everything they can to give people a sense that um, uh, their way of life is threatened. Lo and behold, the, the single most uh, important issue to them apparently right now is critical race theory. Who knew that that, <laughs> that was the threat to our republic? That guy's a hater. For real. All right. List of things Obama did not say. Some races are better than others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've... <laughs> That that was the extent of Tucker's analysis. That guy's a hater. So, like, compared to that, a rally was downright cogent. <laughs> Hard to deny. And then uh, a- after this, I 
I, I, I didn't I didn't pull any more analogous Tucker clips because it was two a.m. and I had to go to work the next day. But uh, <laughs> but it, the rest of these examples are things that we know Tucker's positions on pretty well. Um, next up is the vaccine passports. So we know that to to Tucker these are uh, a symbol of oppression that the the government wants wants to enforce these passports because they're declaring war on ordinary people under this under this uh, COVID regime. And even if it comes from corporations, that's still corporate tyranny that we should oppose. So he's all about like Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott signing bills to ban it. Um, here is O'Reilly's take. Vaccine. Okay, so an Axios poll. Yeah, but I have to show you because it's interesting. It asked um, 1,027 adults. All right, do you support or oppose having to show proof of COVID vaccine? Net support, 52%. Opposed, 47%. Very close. Okay. Do you uh, support or oppose dining in a restaurant having to show the Vax card? Okay. 47 support. Opposed, 52. Vacation at a hotel. 60% support. 38% opposed. Travel on an airline. Support, 63. Opposed, 35. Attend a sporting event. Support 56, oppose 43. Okay, so most Americans, according to this poll, uh, do want vaccinated people when they're in crowds to be able to come and go freely, whereas non-vaccinated people, no. Interesting, right? So I have a friend who's an anti-vaxxer, and uh, he doesn't believe the vaccine has caused COVID to drop. It's incredible. He's a smart guy. And no matter what I give him, the stats are astounding, you know, since the vaccine got in. And that's Donald Trump. America's COVID problem has cratered, whereas in India, Canada, other countries, they don't have the vax, Japan, through the roof still. But no matter what I do, this guy's not going to give the vax any credit. Fine. I, it's not, it doesn't affect our friendship. I make fun of them, but I've always made fun of them. Okay? But I know what the mentality is. That people don't want to get the vax, and they're going to make every excuse in the world not to get it. However, you have a right not to get the vax. But you're going to pay a price for it. Unless you live in Texas, but you'll still pay a price. Uh, and Texas passed a law, Senate Bill 968 that says business cannot require a COVID vax before providing services. All business. Now, under the Constitution, if you're a small business, you have a right to say, no, you can't come in without a vax card or a mask or whatever they want to do. But Texas says, no, if you do that, you're going to be denied state contracts or operating permits. I think this law is unconstitutional, but Texas is doing it. And I think Florida did something similar as well. Um, so this controversy, this is the offshoot of uh, most of us are going to be free of COVID uh, this summer. I'm not wearing a mask now. Okay, I don't wear it. And anybody tells me I have to, including my church, done. I'm not going to do it. Uh, if I go on an airliner, I have to do it because I have to get somewhere. But that's it. And 
this is going to be an ongoing story. Okay. So that was a very boring, moderate <laughs> Republican take. Yes, it was. Um, it, 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 and you're not going to pay a price. You're going to pay a price, unless you live in Texas, but you're still going to pay a price. Like, it's just it's meandering old man shit. Yeah. Um, but he, like, he, he comes down on, like, he... He's kind of pro businesses requiring vaccine passports, or at least thinks they have a right to, and thinks laws prohibiting it are unconstitutional. Which is a total 180 from Tucker's take. Yeah. And then there's the um, 9/11 style January 6th Commission, which Tucker railed against two nights in a row in a show. He calls it a farce and said it's the it's the Department of Defense transferring its military posture to American citizens. Absolutely opposes it. This is uh, O'Reilly's take. So my posture, and I think it's sane and fair, is to allow the federal government, the Justice Department, to do what it is doing right now. So about 465 people have been arrested and charged in the Capitol riot. 465. That's a lot. Now let that play out, okay? Because most of these people will plead guilty, and they'll make deals. Like, they won't go to jail, but they'll tell you how they knew or where they got the gun or where, you know, whatever it may be. Let all that unfold. Okay. The Justice Department is compiling this. I would say 80% at least are going to take deals and they'll be convicted of whatever crime they're charged with. But in the process of that, the Justice Department will get information from the perpetrators themselves. Okay. Once you've got that baseline of information, if there are gaps that we don't know about, then Congress comes in. Is that fair? Does that make sense to everybody? So you take as much politics out of it, you're never going to take all the politics out of it. If they have a congressional hearing, it's going to be Republicans against Democrats, Trump is the devil, Trump did this, Trump did that. You know what it's going to be. And the networks are salivating over this because their ratings are just imploding. They have nothing to give you. Nothing. All right? And this would bump them up again. So they want that badly. Yeah, so he's not opposed to the commission. He just thinks we should wait until the FBI is done. He uh, wants us to take the politics out of a riot whose purpose was <laughs> to stop the election of the next president. Yeah, yeah it's maybe a little uh, optimistic. <laughs> okay. Um, and, yeah, and, but other than that, um, radical take... Billiam, uh, we should investigate crimes. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and it was interesting to me that he's just like, most of the, most of the people arrested, you know, they're going to take deals, not going to go to jail, whereas Tucker is every night like, why are these people in, why are these people being beaten in prison? <laughs> it's, it's just a different tenor. Um, yeah. And then, uh, it, cr- crime is a little different, though. We know, we know Tucker likes to talk a lot about crime, um, <laughs> Bill O'Reilly has some thoughts on cybercrime. So cybercrime is the crime of the future. Can't kill anybody, but you can do pretty much everything else on cybercrime. He's <laughs> like the the most bored host of of yeah. like a true crime show <laughs> tonight on cybercrime. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, you can't kill anybody. You can do pretty much anything else on the cyber. I don't know. It's, it's just, like it's just a bored old man. Yeah. Like that, I, 
like I sincerely kind of enjoyed listening to O'Reilly's podcast because there are, there are points where it, it's nothing political. He'll just talk about like he spent a long time talking about his trip to his trip to Wyoming and how it's the most beautiful state in the country. And he's made a point to go to all fifty states more than once. And Wyoming's the most beautiful, hands down. Uh, it's like it. It's just like. Yeah, it's it's a bored old man talking about his life. Yeah, um, and occasionally he has an opinion or two. <laughs> but then uh, here he does get into the crime problem in San Francisco, and this sounds a little bit more like Tucky T Tucky C's. Let's <laughs> go. Needs the FBI in there. City's totally collapsed. Be- and I've said this many times: one of the most beautiful cities on this earth. So San Francisco is a population of about eight hundred and fifty thousand and falling. Rents are out of control, but people cannot go out of their homes in the city by the bay because thugs are running wild. They're everywhere. Drug, ad- drug addicts in particular, everywhere. The streets are full of waste. Uh, children are watching the most heinous things go on right before their eyes. People are sleeping on your front stoop, and nothing is being done about it. Crime is up in almost every category. Human sex trafficking in San Francisco up 20% this time as compared to last year this time. I mean, this is, this is a city that has lost all supervisory capacity. There is no quality of life left in San Francisco. It's stunning. It's like Portland, Oregon. So, but that's a different thing because Antifa has ruined that city. But, the, but if you, I, I mean, I've been to San Francisco 20, 25 times, always had a great time there. I was there a couple of years ago. OK, and it was bad, but it wasn't this. And the reason this is happening is the D.A. is named Chesa Bodine. His mother and father were in the weather underground in the 1960s. The weather underground committed murders. So Chesa Bodine was elected. All right. And he's now facing a recall petition, but he's elected in 2019. He simply isn't prosecuting crimes. You can steal under $1,000 in San Francisco, and this guy won't prosecute you. What do you think's happening? CVS and Walgreens, they're all pulling out. It's an armed camp. I mean, this is like what happens in the third world when there's a dictator who has no control over anything. That's in San Francisco. Okay. You guys elected him. You guys who live out there put in this far left progressive apparatus. You guys deserve what you're getting. But I feel sorry for the children. That's what I feel sorry for. You know, all those dictators that have no control over what's going on. A a dictatorial (laughs) district attorney? (laughs) What? Yeah, it stands for a DA dictator attorney. Yeah, so it, it that that was a, that was a bit more uh, in Tucker's wheelhouse as far as how you talk about crime in cities. Yeah, it, just lying about how things are going on. I think. Yeah, I, I like that his his primary example was people are sleeping on your doorstep. <laughs> you have to see homeless people in San Francisco. It's terrible. If only there was something we could do to fix that. And then from there, he segues into, uh, he's currently promoting his book, Killing the Mob. Um, this, th- this was so weird. And while we're on the uh, crime scene, I'll give you an update on Killing the Mob. Five weeks out, 
about 250,000 copies sold, quarter of a million. It'll be uh, number one on the New York Times list this coming Sunday again. We thank you all for supporting the book. The reason that Killing a Mob is doing so well is it accurately portrays organized crime. They are evil people. And we back it up. And it's also got amazing stories that you have never heard. So anyway, that made me think about uh, the Godfather movies and the television program, The Sopranos. And one of the stars of, this, uh, of The Sopranos, a guy named Steve Sharippa. You may be seeing him on Blue Bloods now. That's uh, probably the best show on TV, Blue Bloods. But anyway, you remember him. And this week is the anniversary of the last episode of The Sopranos in 2007, this week. Now, Steve uh, has a podcast, Talking Sopranos, along with another uh, actor, Michael Imperioli, who is also in the program. And he's also got an upcoming book, Woke Up This Morning, The Definitive Oral History of The Sopranos. And Mr. Sharippa joins us now from Laguna, California, where he is living large, no pun intended. He interviews this fucking Sopranos actor. <laughs> Why are you talking about politics, Bill? Just, just interview your TV actors that you have a crush on and just go away. <laughs> You know, you know why I enjoyed this? It's like visiting my grandpa without having to visit my grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> like, all he wants to do is just, like, hang out with celebrities and talk about and TV shows. Like, why? <laughs> yeah. You know, I was thinking about The Godfather and Blue Bloods is the best show on TV. <laughs> um, in this interview, he... Uh, it, his first question is like, don't you think Sopranos glorified these mobsters? And, uh, and the guy's like, no. And then that's the end of the hard question. So. <laughs> then, uh, at, at the end, they have this exchange, which I fucking loved. My son, 17, is now watching The Sopranos. And I said, if you say any of the words that those guys say, you got to answer to me. See, I'm the real godfather here, Steve. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm saying to you? I never doubted you for a second. I know. (laughs) I'm I'm letting him watch it, but I don't want him to adopt the mannerisms. Now, interestingly enough, you you play 180 degrees opposite character on Blue Bloods, which is, I think, the finest uh, written program on the air today. And the ensemble cast, just like The Sopranos, you guys are so good, every single one of them. Um, but I like the Blue Bloods better because uh, the police are heroes, generally speaking, in my mind, whereas I said the organized crime, they're evil. Now, when this you go out on this, go ahead, go ahead. This is what I like. When I was on The Sopranos, I would have fat, sweaty mobsters come to me and give me tips <laughs> on how to kill someone. I'm not kidding you. In a bar. <laughs> So, so I I like Blue Bloods better because cops are the good guys and criminals are the bad guys. And, well, I liked being on Sopranos because mobsters would tell me how to kill people. <laughs> what the fuck? This is like a pet peeve of mine, but like being super controlling over what your 17-year-old says. Yeah, also, O'Reilly is like 71 and he has a 17-year-old kid. I didn't realize he was that old. Oh, I guess you did say he was born in 49 that would make sense um 
Yeah, I don't I don't like that. Like the whole like I'm in favor of like being respectful in the proper um like if you're around people who you need to impress or whatever, but like the whole like swear swear words are bad thing kind of bothers me. Yeah, like I, I I'm not a parent and never will be. But uh, if I had a kid who was seventeen, I don't give a fuck if they watch The Sopranos. I'm yeah. not contr- like I'm not letting them watch anything. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like or like if like if they just say a swear word, like I I don't care. Like if you're not doing it, if you're not like calling your boss an asshole or something, getting yourself in trouble, I don't care. <laughs> like yeah. I don't I don't know. It's it's just a weird like controlling thing. I I feel like it's like a relic of centuries old. We have to control our children, or they'll go and be murderers or something. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> we have to control every word, or we have to discipline them all the time, or they're gonna. I'm gonna stop because I'll, <laughs> I'll just keep going. I'll just keep going. <laughs> so then, Bill ends every episode of his show by uh, re- reading some mail from listeners. Um, <laughs> so I have a couple of clips of that to round out here. This this one is in regards to the, the Capitol riot again. Somebody has written in with a disagreement about Bill's posture. Let's go to the mail. Francis, Bill, I agree that the assault on the Capitol January 6th was bad. However, I feel the burning riots in Portland, Seattle, and other cities are equally as bad. I disagree with you, Francis. I mean, that's the capital of the United States. Those people tried to interfere with our governance. Mm-hmm. in a very irresponsible and dangerous way. Now, that doesn't diminish what's happened in Portland, Seattle, Minneapolis, other places, does it? But in Washington, D.C., at the nation's capitol building? No. So, I mean, like, he has flashes where he's, like, a reasonable person. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, that, I, I mean... I, I pretty much agree with his take there. Yeah, same. Um, and then here's another one somebody has uh, mailed in about vaccines. Adele Watros, Yom, Washington. Bill, I have a serious question. For those that are vaxxed, why should we even care about people who are not? Because they're fellow human beings, Adele? But I agree with you in principle. I'm not going to get involved with anybody who's doesn't want to take the vax. I'm not going to condemn them. Certainly not going to praise them because I think it's wise to get the vax. So, th- these mail segments are interesting to me because what happens a lot is when he gets like pushback or criticism from these listeners, they're people who are like watching other right-wing media and then it, and it's kind of like, how come you're not being as crazy as I'm used to? Yeah, and Bill is like kind of a relic of an older era, and yeah. he's just like, oh, no, I don't give a fuck about any of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that you should push back on people who refuse to get vaccinated because they're putting other people at, at risk, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, like I, I, I think you've talked about it before. I think the best way to, like, Yelling at people and saying, you need to get it, you're going to kill people, doesn't work. Like, I, you've said it before that, like, social pressure is the good way to yeah, change people's yeah. mind. Like, it, if the group that you want to be a part of does something or has a belief, then you'll eventually get there. And I think what we're seeing is the more people who get vaxxed, the fewer people there are who distrust it. Yeah. So, 
Like I, over time, I think this will chill out a bit. God, some of the crazies I follow, though, I, one guy was writing recently. Um, he's so assuming that everybody who got the vaccine dies in a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> then he's like, uh, it, "They're gonna shut the internet down. So how are we all gonna keep in touch?" <laughs> it's like you're 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 trying to build a phone tree for fucking eighty two percent of the population dying off. <laughs> crazy <laughs> oh man that, that'd be a thanos moment right there yeah. like God, like dude, just actually consider for a second what it means if everybody who got the vaccine dies in a few years like that is we're there would done be nothing <laughs> society would be over yeah and then here uh bill o'reilly talked uh, uh a few episodes back on his show about how he's in favor of Joe Biden hosting George Floyd's family at the White House. He thinks it's a good, like, compassionate thing to do. And he, he gets some pushback from his listeners on that here. James Patterson, Jacksonville, Florida. I have to disagree with your feeling, O'Reilly. It's appropriate for President Biden to host George Floyd's family at the White House. Why not talk about the parents of the small children killed in Chicago? Uh, it appears the Floyd family was invited to the White House to push a political agenda. I don't care what the White House's motive was. All right. I think compassion is important. And if I were president, I would have invited them. And whataboutism doesn't really uh, affect me. I don't do whataboutism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but what about? <laughs> That's usually what follows. I don't do whataboutism is what about. <laughs> and then uh, it, we, we've got three more. We've got three more clips here. This is the last mailbag uh, one that I cut. And I, I kind of like these ones. They're very concise. I know. Like these are kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. like, I, this is my favorite part of his podcast too. They're they're very hard. They're very easy to untangle. Like, like I'm not... gonna unironically listen to this once in a while. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> like it it, it it still feels like I'm working on the on the show because I'm still engaging in this world. But it's just so much more pleasant listening to Tucker. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I feel you there. And this this is a big one. Last week we we talked all about how Tucker thinks the FBI is entrapping all these people. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so, we did. So somebody asked Tucker about his take, or somebody asked Bill about his take on that here. Max Hill, Churchville, Virginia. I'd like to know your thoughts on the FBI instigating the kidnapping of the governor of Michigan and the uh, riot on January sixth. I have seen no evidence to back up either of those assertions. That's my feeling. <laughs> nope. <laughs> wow, it is so strange to just listen to someone who cares about truth. Like, I... like a little bit. Like, he doesn't do it all the time, but, like, this time is like, yeah, no, that didn't yeah, like, happen. Because, like, I, I, I think Bill O'Reilly is a piece of shit and a monster, but, like, it, listening to this show, it, I'm, I'm glad you had the same reaction. This is, like, this is so quaint. Yeah. And, like... I think we wouldn't have a podcast if Tucker was just like milk toast Republican. <laughs> yeah, if Tucker was this boring, my God. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so like, and I think what I I think what we're noticing here, I think the big difference in in tenor is that O'Reilly isn't trying to scare you. He's just kind of talking about what's going on. He has no interest in scaring his audience. Yeah. And I think that's the primary difference, and that's really on display in this next clip. He's talking to uh, Kristen Tate. She's an economics reporter at The Hill about inflation. Okay. We're already seeing real inflation happen. You went right, through those so prices, consumer prices at the beginning of your segment. Right. As we just proved, prices are going up. 
But salaries aren't going up to match that. So while the government can spend as much as it wants, you, Kristen Tate, and me, Bill O'Reilly, we can't print money. We have to rely on the money that we earn or someone gives us. All right? So, I mean, every time I go to the gas station, I'm paying 40% more than I paid last year to fill up my tank. And now it's going to even be more because they want to tax gas and all all that business. So that means that people have less money. Correct? They have less money. That's exactly right. And we might even see stagflation, which is even worse than inflation, because it means inflation occurs with no economic growth. And I really want to underline an important point that you made earlier, which is that inflation really hurts the working class and poor people the most, right? Because these are folks who still have to go to the grocery store and buy groceries. They still have to fill their cars up with gas. And all of these little costs really add up to people like that who are not seeing uh, you know, their wages increase at all. But also, in addition to the federal government, the government paying people to stay home is adding to this problem, Bill, because productivity in this country work, is right. way But that's going to end. See, exactly. that'll end soon. Um, and then people will not look. if the government, not if the not if the Democrats have their way. I don't but know. But they're not going to have their way. Democrats they're... are pushing for a UBI now. They want this to be the new normal, and they no, use I the know pandemic what they want, as an excuse. But they're not going to get it, and, and they're not going to get the infrastructure. Uh, two trillion on that, they'll get half. But that doesn't help everybody because the prices that are in play now are going to stay there or go higher. All right, at least for another two years, they're going to stay where they are, go higher. So while the Republican Party may be able to tamp down the chaos, they're not going to be able to tamp down the gas prices or the food prices. They're going to remain, and therefore people will start to suffer. When people start to suffer economically, when they look at their wallet and there's not the money there used to be in it, then they'll get mad and they'll vote out Biden. That's what's probably going to happen. It's not a lock, but it's probably going to happen. So that was really interesting to me that she starts to kind of like play into the fear mongering, like, oh, do they want a UBI? And this is going to be the new normal. It's like, no, they're not going to get that. What's probably going to happen is people just vote out Biden. Also, there's like one Democrat who's like, yeah, UBI. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the party is not pushing for UBI. Fuck you. Yeah, no. And like, <laughs> and I, and while I completely disagree with them about UBI being bad for people, I think UBI would be excellent for people. Um, but like, they're at least having a conversation on the level of Econ 101 that I took in college because I'm cool. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, like what they're saying like aligns with how I understand economics, um, even if I disagree with their um, like prescription. Yeah, their tactics for improving things. Yeah, it, th- that was just like that was so jarring to me that he he was actively resistant to getting like apocalyptic or like just it, no 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 it's it's not going to be that bad they'll just vote out biden it's going to be fine like it and the, the, that's where the the difference here really crystallized for me to to round out here we're going to step back from his podcast for a second over the tenure of the O'Reilly factor uh and this is two episodes in a row that John Stewart is going to make an appearance on our air now, because um, John Stewart and Bill O'Reilly appeared on each other's shows all the goddamn time. I think I think Bill was on uh, the Daily Show like fifteen times or something, and wow. and Stewart was on his sh- Stewart was on the O'Reilly Factor several times. Um, 
and they would have like long protracted conversations. These were like a minimum twenty minute conversations. And because uh, they could actually have a conversation back then, crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so this clip is it's a little bit longer, but it it and I, I want to be clear. I don't think John Stewart is like a prophet, but uh, I think his his analysis of Fox News in particular is very sharp. Like he has he has a very good sense of how that how that network operates. And um, it, this is here, Stewart talking to O'Reilly about kind of what Fox has metastasized into around him. He says that uh, it, it, you, you used to be very controversial, but now you're left-wing on Fox. You're the voice of reason here. Th- this conversation, I think, is important to like what I'm noticing with the trend of Bill O'Reilly versus Tucker Carlson. Now, are you shocked that shocked. a Democratic poll operation what? shows that Fox News is mm-hmm. the most trusted news operation no. in the country. No. 49% of Americans no, I don't. trust Fox News. I'm not He's shocked stunned. at that. Are you shocked that an internet poll said I was the most trusted newscaster in America? Yeah, but that was like Blinky did it. This was a big, <laughs> big, big concern. Okay? And somebody told me off the record that you were one of the 49%. That believe Fox News is the most trusted news organization. Here's what I believe. Fox News is the most passionate and sells the clearest narrative of any news organization, if that's how you're... Are you still referring to it in that manner? Yeah, it's a news organization. Right. That, that's oh, how the okay. poll referred to it. No, I'm sure Nobody they had any problem? Only you. Well... Only you have a I problem. think Fox, in and of yourself, say you're not a news organization all day. Isn't it now your news... What, what was it? Your news from 9 to 11, and then your opinion, and then your news again from like 1 to 2.30. That's kind of like a newspaper. Except, news except on the Jewish holidays, exactly. then you're not. And then on alternate parking days, you're news. But then Christmas, you're not. And then... What is Stuart, it? Stuart. During Ramadan, your news? Stuart. Am I allowed to say Ramadan on <laughs> You Fox? are. You can say Ramadan. Are you okay. sure? Stuart, just for a second. Okay, just for a second. Take a deep breath. Carl Rove just did this. Think, think about a newspaper. Think about the last newspaper you read, New yeah. York Times. Um, and think about the news pages. Mm-hmm. And then you open another page, and there is the opinion page. Mm-hmm. Clearly labeled opinion page. Yeah. You have no problem with that, right? First of all, uh, newspapers are a passive piece of paper that you go to and you know where the opinion thing is. Television doesn't function that way and you know You don't it. think people there know is the factor no, is an opinion show? You don't think they know that? There, it's not certainly not clearly labeled. I've looked at your promos. You're part of the fair and balanced part. <laughs> You're part of the most trusted well, name in news. But you don't think people know Let me the this O'Reilly way. factor isn't an opinion show? That's like saying somebody watches your show, they don't know it's a comedy show. Come on, Stuart, wise up, man. Everybody knows this. People watching in Pakistan, you know, they had a little direct TV. They uh-huh. go, that O'Reilly's opinion show. They know. They know. They why, know why, you're a comic. Why they do they know use I'm an that opinion accent? guy. Uh, let, let, let me ask you a question. You truly believe that Fox News is uh, uh, just a nonpartisan, fair and balanced, trustworthy... Our hard news operation is. But of course, you're... Okay, you're, you, now you're casting aspersions. Yes, I am. Big word. I believe I am. All right, casting aspersions. That's right. People like Shepard Smith, mm-hmm. people, all of our White House people... Listen, here's, think, well, here's the brilliance little, of... Here's they the brilliance. report fairly. Here's the brilliance of Fox News. What you have been able to do, you and, and Dr. Ailes have been able to mainstream conservative talk radio. And the way that you did it, you can't shoot conservative talk radio directly into the veins of the American people. Their heads would blow up. You can only have that in taxis and you know various places in people's houses. So what you've done is you've taken a cyclonic, narrative-driven news organization, you know, a, a media arm of a political party, of a political wing, and you've sprinkled it. You've cut it 
with a little bit of object, a little bit of Chris Wallace asking a, a tough question. A, a little bit. From nine to four, when Cavuto comes on, not, not that's even a, close. like seven not hours. Not even close. Because they're also part of the journey. They're part, the part jur- of the journey. The Who's journey, part of the journey? The journey begins in the morning. It begins with the Fox innocence, and friends. With the wide-eyed innocence of Fox and Friends. You know, Obama has czars. I googled czar. Did you know that's a Russian word for a Russian leader? Or they'll go through, these children in second grade are singing the praises of Obama. Did you know they sing the praises of their leader in North Korea? And then when the hard news comes on, they go, some people are concerned that they're indoctrinating okay, children. So you, you think that the Fox News channel is, is set up solely to provide aid and comfort to the Republican Party That's and right. the conservative movement. That's right. Nothing else. Uh, and, to make, and to make some money. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that is exactly what Fox News does. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, you nailed it, Bill. <laughs> yeah, so it, this is interesting to me for two reasons. One, just because the, the focus of our show is Tucker Carlson. Mm-hmm. Tucker would never do this. I mean, Tucker almost never has anybody on who disagrees with him. And when he does, it's like he's going to ask two loaded questions and talk over him for four minutes. It, he... He never has like conversations like this. Yeah, and uh, it th- like there's no room for it on his show. No, and and that that's interesting to me. But then it also like so what I was attention for me throughout this because what I was observing with what O'Reilly's doing now with his podcast and everything, um, we just said he's not trying to scare people. And if you when I when I went back and listened to clips from the O'Reilly Factor when he was on Fox. It was much more in that vein. It was like it, the the left wants to take power away from the white establishment, and they're going to abolish the electoral college, and blah blah blah, like we listened to. And so I, I was, I was, it, it didn't click for me at first to why this man seemed different in different uh, mediums, you know. Yeah. And then um, at the end, there, Stuart, because Bill O'Reilly said, "Do you really believe Fox News is just to provide aid and comfort to the Republican Party?" And Stuart says, "Yes, and to make some money." And the fear is where the money is. When Bill was doing the O'Reilly Factor, he was employed for a propaganda company. And one of the goals is to make money. You make money by scaring your audience. So he did it back then because that was his job. And Tucker does it now because that's his job. It he, He's just fill in a slot. He's just an employee. It's it's the work a day. Oh, you, you gin up some fear, you gin up some resentment, the money rolls in. Yeah. And so, it, like we talked up top, when we get into all these debates, like, is Tucker sincere? It doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, he, he has a job. Yeah. <laughs> and he's very good at it. But but then that that's still, like, on, on the O'Reilly factor, he still had Jon Stewart on. And like we said, Tucker never does that now. So something changed, right? Yeah. Because, um, I mean, it's it's across the board. Hannity doesn't do this. Laura Ingram doesn't do this. So it it is a uh, an overall change on Fox that has happened where there's no room for this kind of discussion or disagreement now. And uh, it, I think it's kind of everywhere in conservatism. I will I want to let you finish, but yeah. No, you're good. It's just like, it, again, that's how you have to make money now. Cause like it, so when 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 Fox News started and Rupert Murdoch appointed Roger Ailes CEO back in '96, and they hired O'Reilly, it's the fresh-faced young guy with all these Emmys in local <laughs> reporting, it really was uh, the, the beginning of this concerted effort by 
like this this plutocratic class. This is where we saw like the Coke networks, the Coke networks media arm, it, getting its feet wet, things like that. The, the, this idea that like we can we can have our own media that we use to drive the narrative in certain in certain ways. So and the goal was, I mean, we'll never have to pay taxes, we'll never have any regulation. And in doing that, the way you keep the the way you keep the money machine going, the way you keep eyes glued to the screen, like they discovered, is ginning up fear and resentment. Mm-hmm. And then over time, like I don't think the plutocrats realized, like they, they were thinking short term, because when you do that to your audience, then increasingly the other side, any disagreement becomes a part of this enemy that is trying to hurt you. And so they can't do this anymore. They can't have Jon Stewart for, to talk for 20 minutes to Tucker Carlson and have an informed discussion where he might change somebody's mind. Uh, because that's letting the enemy in and they're going to do harm to you. And it's we've seen the product of this in electoral politics now. This is what created Donald Trump. This is what gave us Marjorie Taylor Greene. This, this fear of ordinary people of being harmed by people who don't toe the Fox News line. Yeah. And, like, the the plutocrats didn't want Trump, but it's the inevitable result of what they did. Yeah. (laughs) I think the difference we're observing between Bill O'Reilly and Tucker Carlson here is really illustrative of what's happened there, why that has changed. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You went in a slightly different direction, um, but I feel like I I can... jump off of this anyway um my favorite part of last week was and i know you're not into youtube culture like i am but uh steven crowder got fucking owned by uh, a left-wing guy named sam cedar i heard a little about this yeah um they are terrified to talk to people on the left because they know they'll get destroyed (laughs) So Crowder agreed to come on to the H3 podcast, and the H H3, the guy who runs that, is named Ethan, and he is not really into politics. So he invited Sam Cedar, who's a political guy, secretly because Stephen Crowder has been avoiding Sam Cedar for the last three or four years or something. Okay, and then when Sam Cedar appears after, okay, I I missed a, I missed a step. So. Steven Crowder said on his show before he jumped in with uh, H3, oh, this is going to be a layup debate. And then he comes in and Ethan's like, hey, I brought Sam Cedar. And Steven Crowder, I swear to God, goes, oh, God, what a fucking nightmare. And then <laughs> and then and he just fucking dips. He can't talk to someone who actually has leftist positions. Jesus. who's like politically literate so and um i kind of thought that's where you were going with this but um but yeah people on the right can't talk to people on the left because they'll get destroyed if they're if they're reasonably uh prepared with their ideas so yeah it doesn't surprise me that fox news doesn't like talking to john stewart anymore either because <laughs> people fucking like him if you haven't seen that um just, just and you're interested. I, I, I don't care if you're interested. Go watch it anyway. <laughs> um, Steven Crowder, H3 podcast. It happened like a week ago. It's the funniest fucking thing ever. <laughs> you have to see it. <laughs> it was so good. Yeah, that that's amazing. And like, it, it yeah, th- no, I don't need to go on that rabbit hole. It was just going to end in fuck Steven Crowder. But, um, 
you know, he deserves it. Yeah, fuck Steven Crowder. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, I, I think that's all I got. Did you know Steven Crowder's dad is his producer? Really? Yes, and that's... like his booker. So, <laughs> so like, what happened, we, we're assuming, is Steven Crowder appears on that podcast... And, like, the camera cuts away from Steven and shows his co-host for a few minutes. So everyone's like, oh, God, he's freaking out to his dad. What the fuck do I do? I wasn't supposed to talk to Sam Cedar today. That's so funny. <laughs> oh, dude, it's so good. It's so good. You just, it, uh, oh, man. Dad, help. <laughs> I'm serious. We will watch it together after this because okay. it is so good. You need to see it. Yeah, uh, is that is that all? Are we done? I think we're done. Okay. Um, this has been the Tucker Out Podcast. We have a website and a Twitter and a Patreon. Um, the website is tuckeredoutpod.com and the Twitter is... What is our handle? Is uh, it Tucker Out Pod? It's at Tucker Out Pod. Okay, at Tucker Out Pod. Um, Patreon, Tucker Out, is creating a podcast. Thank you to all of our lovely patrons. Yeah, you guys are the best. For real. Uh, even people whose names I can't pronounce, I still love you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and your friend Jimmy and your friend Jimmy who better be fucking listening right now (laughs) or you're in big trouble mister (laughs) alright we'll we'll be back Uh, in the meantime let's let Bill O'Reilly play us out fuck does that mean (laughs) that's tomorrow and that is it for us today Okay, I don't know. Whatever it is, it's not right on a teleprompter. I don't know what that is. I've never seen that. No, there is. We are going to do Sting, yeah. Okay, but... Yeah, I can't read it. There's no no words on it. Okay. There's no words there to play us out. What does that mean, to play us out? Sting is going to do... It's a video. Sting video. What is for credits? I don't know what that means to play us out. What does that mean? To end the show? Yeah. Yeah. All right, go, go. In five, four, three. That's tomorrow, and that is it. In five, four, three. That's tomorrow, and that is it for us today. And we will leave you with a. I can't do it. We'll do it live. No. We'll do it live! Fuck it! Do it live! I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live! Right. Fucking thing sucks! In five, four, three. That's tomorrow and that is it for us today. I'm Bill O'Reilly. Thanks again for watching. We'll leave you with Sting and a cut off his new album. Take it away. Fuck up, it's gonna get better. <laughs>